You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning, church family. Good to see you. Glad that you're here this morning. I want to welcome guests, those of you who are here who are new or newer to Redeemer. I want to say welcome to you and uh, thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Uh, My name is Jordan. I serve as one of our pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, My responsibilities are lead us in preaching and vision and and so I am just um, excited this morning to get to open God's Word with you. If you have a Bible, which I hope you do, um, open to Acts chapter 2. If you have a Bible on your phone, you can power on to Acts chapter 2, but let's just get the Bible in front of us. Um, If you don't have a Bible, let us know. We'd love to get you a Bible. Acts chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. Let me give you a little bit of of why. Let me give you a little bit of why, what we're doing in this series. The series is titled Blueprint, um, The Church As It Should Be. In fact, I was, uh, had a, a friend of mine this week who is, um, I'm not sure if he's a follower of Jesus. I'm not sure. Um, but he told me this week that he, uh, he saw on Facebook the sermon series Blueprint, and he said it made him think of an early 2000s Jay-Z album, uh, which I thought that was awesome. Um, uh, that's not the blueprint we're talking about. The blueprint that we're talking about is what Michael Goheen, who's a New Testament scholar, Michael Goheen says that when we get to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, what we see is we see um, what is to be the blueprint for the church in all times and all generations. The blueprint of the church in all times and all generations. Um, it's an interesting thought if to think about your relationship with the church. Maybe we don't talk about that much. We often talk about our relationship with God, and rightly so. But the New Testament is really clear that as we come to know God, those of you who, who are here this morning who are followers of Jesus, you've trusted in Jesus' work on your behalf, as we come to know God through the work of Jesus, that we are called into relationship to Jesus' people, to the church. And so what we're doing in this series is that we're really trying to really go back to say, what is the church as it's meant to be? Now, the church is always going to take on different forms in different places, right? The church is gathering today in different parts of the globe that probably look different than this. This is certainly a Western setting that we're in. Rose, and someone's speaking to you for 20, 30 minutes, you're probably hoping more toward the 20-minute side of that, uh, but this is certainly a Western form of the church, but it is, there's a blueprint that the church should be following in all times and all places, and in Acts chapter 2, we believe that Luke, the author of, of Acts, gives us the blueprint, and we started this series last week, and we looked at the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter, the one who denied Jesus, who was, a, who was really a coward, denied Jesus as Jesus is arrested and as he is crucified, Peter is hiding with the other disciples, suddenly is filled with power. There's a newness to his spirit, and he begins to proclaim the good news of Jesus. He begins to proclaim in Jerusalem that the Jesus whom they had arrested and tried, unjustly convicted, unjustly killed, has now been raised from the dead, and that he is God's true Messiah. And that they, those who were hearing him, he said, you should repent and be baptized and be saved. And the text tells us that day that there's an amazing response to Peter's preaching. There is indeed repentance. The text tells us that they are cut to the heart in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. And that that day there is faith in Jesus. There is new faith in Jesus. There's a turning from what I used to believe in the life I used to live. And now I trust that Jesus is supreme. He is who he says he is. And I'm going to live the, the life that he calls me into, that he invites me into. There's repentance. That's what repentance is. And the text tells us that day that 
3,000 souls were saved. It's an amazing outpouring of God's power. And in many ways, it is the genesis of the church, of this new work that God is doing in the world. It's interesting. You might not have known this, but Luke wrote Acts, right? So Luke writes the gospel of Luke. He tells us the story of Jesus, of who Jesus is, and how Jesus lives, and what he does, and the things that he teaches, and the things that he accomplishes. And then he writes his second volume, the book of Acts, which in many ways is the continuation of the same. It's, what, it's about who Jesus is, and what Jesus is continuing to do in the world, but now he's doing it through his disciples. The risen, ascended, reigning Jesus, now at work by the power of his spirit through his disciples. And on the heels of these 3,000 souls that are saved, Luke does something unique with his, with his um, account. He actually zooms out. He pulls us up out of the details of the story, and he gives us a summary. It's like, he, it's like he's a good tour guide. You ever been on a tour where you're just getting a ton of history at one time, and then all of a sudden the tour guide just kind of stops, and he like zooms out for you, and he maybe shows you something over here, and he recaps, and he really wants to make sure you don't miss this. You might have missed some of the details but don't miss this. This is what he's doing in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. I want to read it together. It'll be on the screen. We'll actually start in verse 41. And those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We looked at this last week. The idea of being devoted is this kind of relentless steadfastness, this hunger Right? No matter what my obstacles might be in the way, I'm devoted. And so it says they are steadfast in learning the apostles' teaching. And Josh, Pastor Josh did a great job of explaining for us what that means. That the apostles are passing on two things. The work of Christ, who Christ is and what he did, and the ways of And so they're devoted to learning both the works and the ways of Christ. But that's not all they're devoted to. Look at the rest of the verse. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, underline that if you have a pen or pencil, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. That is a loaded verse. We'll come back to it in a minute. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. This is interesting. The same, think about it. They, are, they have a hostile message in the culture, the same message that had Christ killed. And later on in Acts, we see that they even get persecuted. But they're living in such a way that though their message is one that is generally opposed, they garner favor with people, all people. This is stunning. There's something about this life together that they are living that's important. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the blueprint, Michael Goheen says, for the church in all times and all places. Flip over with me a page or two in your Bible. I'm going to look at Acts chapter 4. Verses 32 through 37, it's interesting. Luke jumps, he, he, so he, he kind of gives us this tour guide moment, the summary statement of, the, of what the church is supposed to be. 
And then he jumps back into the details of the scene, tells us what happens next. Peter and John are doing some pretty incredible things through their teaching and their ministry. There's even a healing that they do. They have the same power of Jesus to heal. And then Luke gives us, again, another summary statement. The church goes from 3,000 people to about 5,000 people in a matter of weeks. And he, he won't let us off the hook here. He's saying, see the blueprint. Even as the church is growing, the blueprint is the same. Look at Acts chapter 4. Verses 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed, so this is about 5,000 at this point, were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." We see it again, don't we? Some of the same exact language and verbiage and themes. And it's easy for us as outsiders to this text to miss something that is really important. The first church, this church in Acts 2 of 3,000, this church in Acts 4 of 5,000 plus, we are told is of one heart. They're of one heart. I want you to think about that. 5,000 people of one heart. You know how hard it is to stay, if you're married, you know how hard it is to stay unified with just your spouse, right? If you have a roommate, you know how hard it is to stay unified with like two people. 5,000 people, an arena full of people, essentially. An arena full of people, of one heart, of one soul, all things in common. What we're being told here is that the church as it should be is a unified church. Unified church. And it's important that we don't miss the fact that this is an eclectic group of people. It's why the day of Pentecost was so powerful. That outpouring of the Spirit upon Peter, turning him from a coward to a Spirit-filled man proclaiming the gospel. That day was a day in which there were people gathered from across the nations in Jerusalem who heard the gospel message as God poured out tongues upon the apostles. They hear the gospel in their native tongue. It's a diverse group of people. There are religious people in this group, and irreligious people in this group. There are rich people in this group and poor people in this group. There is no doubt in their own way some version of like Aggies and Longhorns and Red Raiders, like those kind of deeper divisions amongst people in this group. There is a diversity in this group. I want you to think about this for a second. What does this mean? Well, what he's trying to get across to us here is this, that the first church was diverse, but yet they were deeply, deeply unified. Deeply unified in what? In one common experience. They had all been pierced to the heart by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 37 tells us. They all experienced the great grace, the great gift of God that is called repentance. If you've ever repented of sin in your life. You know what a gift and a grace it is to be able to repent, to experience freedom and forgiveness that flows from the side of Christ, new life, 
and walking, turning from sin and walking in obedience, they all had realized that they were sinners. They each had encountered, they each had experienced an encounter with a living God, the encounter that was marked by grace and forgiveness, not condemnation, an encounter that offered them new life. What is it that unites the church? What is it that brings the church together in one heart and one soul? It is the experience of conversion, of Christian conversion. They are united in their love and their devotion of Christ because God had first loved them in Christ. And this love of God, this devotion to Christ, is now spilling over in love for one another. The picture that we get, the blueprint for the church in all times and all places, starts with a devotion to Christ that spills over into a devotion to one another. That's what the text means when it says they were devoted to the fellowship, to the fellowship. Because of what Jesus has done for me, the love, great love that he's given and extended to me, I will love you. It's a picture of gospel-centered unity amongst diversity. It's a beautiful picture. And Luke gives us this picture twice in Acts chapter 2 and again in Acts chapter 4. He's making sure that we realize that unity is not optional for the church. He's making sure that we realize that unity in the church is is a fruit of the gospel. It was purchased for us by Christ. He wants us to see that this is in the blueprint for the church. One heart, one soul, all things in common. Now, if you are are maybe thinking, okay, yeah, but, if you're one of those people that kind of think that way, um, I'm kind of like that. Like I'm always kind of looking for holes, right? Yeah, yeah, but you're saying, oh, well, well, is, is he saying here that like, these 5,000 people that formed this first church, like, they never had any differences. You're like, come on. Like, they, like, they never dis- disagreed. Like, as they were learning the work of Christ for their life and the ways of Christ, that's called theology, who God is and what he's done and how he calls us to live. Like, as they're learning this stuff, you mean they're not kind of having maybe some differing views on a certain things or maybe they don't have different preferences? You know, as they're coming together to be a worshiping community, you know, they don't have different preferences, like, you know, some people like the quieter music, and some people like the louder, you know, like, they don't have different preferences around which apostles teaching they may be preferred, like, this guy goes a little bit too long, this guy's funnier, this guy's smarter, you know, like, they, they don't have any differences, surely not, right, surely they had plenty of differences. What it means, though, is that there ought to be a deep and abiding love for other believers that is greater than those differences, that trumps those differences, a love that flows from our own having been loved by Christ. It means we never move too far away from our own conversion. That's what it means. The grace that we have experienced and continually experience from God is the same grace that we freely give away to others. This is what it means to be devoted to the fellowship, the same steadfastness and resoluteness or stick to itness that, that God extends to us is the same that we extend to one another. In fact, if you read 1 John, the Apostle John poses a question in his letter, and it's essentially this. How do you know that you have the love of God in you? Do you know, do you know the answer to that question in 1 John? Anybody know it? You love one another. How do you know that the love of God is in you, he says. Your love for your brothers and sisters, your devotion to the fellowship. That's how you know you've really experienced the true grace and the true love of God. And this is certainly the picture that is painted for us in Acts chapter 2. Now, I want you to think about what we just read in Acts 2 and Acts 4. And if you had no 
kind of background or baggage or experience with the church. Like if you just walked in here and you had no idea what you were walking into, you've never seen the Bible, you've never been around a Christian, and you read these two passages, and then you had to describe to somebody what the church was like, what do you think you would say? Like this is one of the things I loved about doing, I did a lot of international ministry when I was in college. It's one of my favorite things I loved about doing international ministry is I would read the Bible with an international that maybe grew up in Japan or China or someplace like that, and they didn't know much, if any at all, about Christianity, and we could just read the Bible, and we could talk about Jesus and who he is and what he's done, and, um, and we'd talk about Christianity in the church with a complete blank canvas. It's actually a really amazing way to do ministry. Um, not a lot of baggage. And if, you, if, if that were you, if you had that kind of blank canvas and you read these two passages and you had to explain to someone what the church was, what do you think you would say? Well, I, I think we probably wouldn't start with like, well, it's a building, it's a, it's a service that we go to, um, it, it's, a, it's a thing that has like programs and some have daycares and some don't. And, you know, it's, 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 you would probably start with saying, well, you know, when we read this passage, it really seems like the church is... Is a family. It's like a big family. A healthy family. The right kind of family. If you grew up in a family that was broken and busted, you'd say, it's like the kind of family that I wish I had. That's what it's like. It's a family that's united in blood. United in Jesus' blood. In our common conversion experience. It's a church that's just, it's, it's a family that's abounding in love and, and Christ's love for us that we share with one another. It's a family that's present and attentive to one another and to our needs. It's a family that's honest. It doesn't hold our needs back from one another, but actually shares our needs with each other because we can be real and transparent. It's a family that's secure, secure in the power of the Holy Spirit and the sovereignty of our great God even in the midst of suffering. It's a family that's generous, a family that's willing to say, what belongs to me is available to serve you because I have been so deeply served by Christ. It's a family. It's a unified, generous family. That's the blueprint. That's the church as it's meant to be. And Luke wants us to see this and take note of this. He doesn't let us move past it. He gives it to us twice in chapter 2 and again in chapter 4. And in both uh, cases, he won't let us chalk up all of this explosive growth to just the preaching and the miracles of the apostles. Do you notice that in the text? It's not just the preaching and the miracles of the apostles that is causing uh, God to add to their number day by day those who are being saved. Yes, the apostles are preaching with great power, but it is the fellowship that is legitimizing their message, that's adorning that message. In other words, maybe you've had a friend that's told you like some outrageous story. This has happened to me recently. This outrageous story. And you're like, I don't believe that. Prove it. You know? And they like pull out their phone and they show you a picture or a video to show you that it really happened. You know what I'm talking about. You've had this experience that's, hey, yeah, prove it. And you're like, oh, well, it legitimizes your story. This is what the familial life of the church does. It legitimizes the message. You're like, people, are, people by nature, by our own flesh nature, you were this way. We are, we are prone to want to reject the gospel. But then we see it, and we see its transformative power. We see it embodied. We see it lived out. We see it proved in the real lives of real people transformed by grace. It legitimizes the message. So yes, the apostles were preaching with great power, but the text tells us great grace was upon them all in how they lived. Yes, the apostles performed signs 
and wonders, but all who believe were together and of one mind. No one was needy. They're selling off their excess property in order to meet the needs of those in the community. I want you to imagine that right now. I want you to imagine that in this church, if there was not a single need among us. Imagine how powerful that would be. What a witness that would be to the power of the risen and reigning Christ who sustains us and meets our needs in real tangible ways. I want you to imagine what that would look like in our world. I want you to, I want you to imagine a couple of things. And these are real stories of things that have happened in this church family over time. I want you to imagine what it would look like for a, a two-car family to say, you know what? There's another family in, my, in our community that doesn't have reliable transportation. We're going to let them have our car. I want you to imagine what that would look like. Just that kind of stuff. I want you to imagine what it would look like for the, that commission check. The person that gets that commission check and that they maybe really don't need that extra commission check. It's nice, you know, like there's some, you could buy some crypto with it. That could be cool. Or you could, uh, you know, you could, you know, make that next addition to the house that you may or may not really need, but you just kind of been wanting, but it's certainly not necessary. And instead of you know, doing those things that aren't really necessary, that commission check then maybe comes to the church so that it could meet the needs of people who are still drowning in student loan debt, those kinds of things. Like what would that look like? to the watching world, to see a people that are so satisfied with Christ, so loved by Christ, such a, say, I've been so, such a recipient of grace that when I see a need among the fellowship, that I can't wait to get to meet that need, to be a conduit of the same grace in which I've received for others. Have you ever experienced church like that? And those are just two small examples of unity and generosity. But have you ever experienced church like this, this picture that we get in the book of Acts. Maybe some of you have at times. I think it's probably why some of you are still walking with Jesus today, because you've experienced the church as it should be, as a family that's unified and generous, that it's been a place in which through all of the ups and downs and highs and lows and sufferings and sorrows, as you've walked this road, it's been a place in which God has kept your soul by his grace. You've experienced the church as a unified and generous family. I hope that that's been the case for many of you here at Redeemer. I think that it has been over the years. But I'm also certain that there are others of you who have never experienced anything close to this when it comes to the church. Perhaps there are even some of you who are here this morning who are tempted to walk away from the church because what you've experienced has maybe been the exact opposite. Maybe it's been disunity and dysfunction. Maybe it's been fighting over politics or carpet colors. Maybe it's been judgment or abuse. There's no shortage of stories of abuse in the church, and it's heartbreaking. But guys, listen, the truth is that none of us come into the church with a blank canvas. I wish we did, but we don't. We all come with baggage we all come with some sorts of unlearning or healing that needs to take place. In fact, I mean, none of us come into any relationship at all free of sins and scars, do we? We all bring our own stuff into relationships. But that's why the gospel is such good news for us, isn't it? Because in the gospel, there is power and there is grace. There is a new life of the Holy Spirit. There is this thing that we call forgiveness and redemption, that, experience, that we experience when Jesus' people get together around his good news. There is the word of God that compels us to be the church as it was meant to be. And so I want to just say to us 
that it's important, no matter where we've come from or what our experience has been, or even at Redeemer 10 years in now to this journey as a church, no matter how much maybe we've drifted here or there or away from the church as it's meant to be, it's important that we don't settle for anything short of what Jesus died, rose again, and commands us to be as his people. It's important that we don't write Jesus off because of the scars and the pain that we've experienced from a tainted version of his bride. In fact, all across the New Testament, we see instructions for the church to actively pursue unity and to live with generosity. In fact, I want you to know how critical it is that we seek this, a church that's a family, unified and generous. I want to give you just a few examples because I want you to see it's, it's, if Acts 2 and Acts 4 is the blueprint, all across the New Testament, we see this blueprint being built upon and taught and commanded. We see it in Paul, the Apostle Paul, and all of his writings. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and he says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Think about what he's saying. Be eager. Like there should be an excitement. Like, hey guys, guess what we get to do today? We get to maintain, do the work of maintenance on our unity. Guys, we get to forgive each other. Wow, what a gift. We get to lean in and seek to understand one another. We get to put our differences aside and our preference aside and boast and rejoice in our common story of conversion. Brothers and sisters. So he says, be eager to maintain do the work. Be excited about the fact that this is what it's like to be a part of the family of God, that we get to do this maintenance work together and maintain the spirit and unity. He talks about this in Philippians 2 and Galatians 6. I want to read to you. I think it'll be on the screen from Philippians chapter 1. Look at how Paul talks about this. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says here, live in a way that's worthy of the grace in which we've received. The gospel is a message of reconciliation. Reconciliation with God that then spills over in our unity, and redemption, and reconciliation with one another. Jesus, in fact, commands that his disciples live this way in John chapter 13. Listen to the words of Jesus. This is almost like, that Jesus is kind of foreshadowing what his church would be here before he even goes to the cross. He says, a new command I give to you. So in other words, not like the way the world lives. I've come to make something new, a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved us? You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus goes on in John chapter 17, and he prays for his church. He says, I do not ask for these only, talking about his original disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their words. So now he's praying for you and me, future disciples, you and me, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The church, living and loving in unity and generosity, like a family, it is critical to the mission of God. Do you see it? 
It's a gift that we get to receive, and it's critical to the mission of God. In fact, the church living and loving as a unified and generous family, it's so critical to the mission of God that in Acts chapter 5, we won't go there because I've already given you enough Bible for today, but in Acts chapter 5, the, the unity and the generosity of the church is threatened. It's threatened within. There's a story of Ananias and Sapphira, okay? And it's threatened from the outside. And it's threatened, and guess what God does? He acts I mean, he acts powerfully to protect it. It's that critical to the mission of God that as this new church is forming, he's saying, I've, I've, I've got to protect it. It's that critical to the mission. That's why Paul exhorts it, right? So if Luke describes it for us and, and Paul instructs it in his writings and Jesus commands it and prays for it and God acts to protect it, I believe that God has been acting even in this church as we've sought his face and prayed to protect this church family from disunity and division over the last two years by his grace. If that's the case, then we should do everything that we can to see to it that this church lives and loves like a family, that we have a Godward orientation, that we are centered on Christ, that we are devoted to the apostles' teachings, not the words of this world, not the words of whatever podcast or radio host or CNN anchor, but we're devoted to the words of Jesus and the ways of Jesus, that we would fight hard for unity in Christ, not just around theology or preference, but as sons and daughters loved by the Father, that we would be present to one another, that we would practice loving generosity, generosity that is as, ex that is, is as extreme as God's limitless grace for us. Why? So that the world would know the love of God, because we are called together to enact the gospel message both to one another and to the world. That is what it means to be a Christian. There's a, a biblical scholar named Alan Kreider, and he, has a, he writes this. He says, in the first two centuries of the church, it was not Christian worship. So it was not Sundays, like what they did on Sundays. He says, it was not Christian worship that attracted outsiders. It was Christian living that attracted them. And what he's not saying is that Christian worship isn't important. Like, this is certainly important. This is probably more important than you know. This is a space and a grace in which God has given us to come and to be devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to be rooted and taught and reminded of our one-mindedness to take the body and the blood every week to say that though we are different people with different stories and different struggles and different uh, paths to walk in life, we have one hope, and that's the body and blood of Jesus. This, this gathering exists to form that in us. So he's not saying it's not important, but what he's saying is that it's not what drew in those whom God added to their number day by day. It was their living, their unity, their generosity. A couple of years ago, I had a friend of mine, a neighbor of ours, that, is, uh, that was not yet a Christian. And um, uh, a lot of you know this. There are several folks uh, that live in, uh, several people that attend Redeemer that live in my neighborhood. And, um, or I live in their neighborhood. Say that. It's not my neighborhood. I just live there. We live in the same neighborhood. And, um, and there was a, a guy who's not yet a Christian, and, and he came on Christmas Eve one year, him and his family. They came here on Christmas Eve, and afterward he said, man, let me tell you something that I, had, something that I realized. Like, I had been in more people's homes in this church than I've been to services of this church. And I just thought that was so cool, man. It's like, that's it. Like, that's what it looks like for us to live out this blueprint in the 21st century in the su suburban Texas, suburban Austin. Open our homes and open our lives 
that we live with one another and we share as an overflow of what God has done for us. I want you to know, church, that your elders here are committed to leading us to be this kind of church. It doesn't mean that there won't be ups and downs and we won't drift here and there, but it's the reason that we are so committed to gospel communities here. Did you know that it's a, it's a requirement for, 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 for a partnership, membership here at Redeemer that you belong to a gospel community? And that's not so that we can just say, hey, look at how many people we have in gospel communities. It's so that we can live this stuff out. Like we've got to organize our church in such a way that we can really live this stuff out. If you're just here once a week and that you don't go any deeper with any other people in this church, it's going to be hard for us to be the church as it's meant to be. It's going to be hard for us to grow in and hold out to the world the grace of Jesus. We're committed to gospel communities not because it's just some cool, word, cool new word for small groups. We named it what we hope it will be so that we might live into it, a gospel community. A gospel community. What brings us together? Not a Bible study. What brings us together? Not friends. What brings us together? Jesus. That's who. What keeps us together? Jesus. What grows us together? Jesus. What he's done for us. And so we're committed to gospel communities. It's the same reason that we give well over 10%, some years up to 20% of, uh, of what's given here we give away as a church to meet the needs of others, to meet the needs of broken people and broken places, lost people and lost places. That's why we give money away because this blueprint, we want to be generous as a church. And so as you're generous here, we get to be generous as a church. It's the same reason that we're so committed to church planting. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks at the end of this series when we commission Redeemer Hutto. We're going to talk about our commitment to church planting. It's the same reason we have to organize the church in such a way that we can really be the family of God in this way. There is a reality that the church can get too big in which we no longer can know one another and we no longer can function like a family. We start to function like a service or like a program, like a, like a building or a meeting place. That's not the church as it should be. So we're committed to multiplication of churches. And we're pursuing the church as it is meant to be, as Jesus died and rose for it to be, because we believe that it's in this life, it's in following Jesus in this way, that we experience the abundant life that Christ talks about, the abundant life that Christ calls us to. That's the only reason that a guy named Barnabas would sell a field. That's the only reason that you would give of any of your excess stuff to meet the needs of others in your community. Because there is so much life in obeying Jesus. In other words, this kind of stuff, unity and generosity, it starts to happen when people get so satisfied in Jesus, so caught up with Jesus, that the other possessions lose their value. Not because those things aren't valuable, but because they don't compare to the value found when we walk more freely and more fully in the ways of Jesus. Did you know you become like what you love? Did you know that? You become like what you love. And the more that our love for Jesus grows, the more that the life of Christ should grow in us. And so hear me. Our aim this morning as we prepare to close, it can't be to leave this place trying harder to be more unified, saying, hey, I'm going to work a little bit at being more generous. Our aim must be to treasure Christ so supremely to be so satisfied in Jesus, to so think about what it is that he's done for us, the grace that he's offered us, the life that he's called us into, that it begins to spill over in our love for others. See, it always comes back to Jesus. So as we close this morning, I believe that Jesus wants to invite us to consider a few things. 
there are three words that I want to give us as we close. There's a beautiful picture in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 as the church as it was meant to be. But there are three real threats to that church, to, to, for us to being that kind of church. There's a real enemy that wants to keep us from more grace, more of Jesus, more people being added to our number day by day because of the life that we live. There are three threats. I want to give you three words, and I want to entrust that the Holy Spirit will start to work with, with those three words in your life, in my life. The first word is individualism. Individualism. Do you know that we live in a culture today where the primary religion in our culture is expressive individualism? Do you know that? I mean, that is, that's the air that we breathe. Expressive individualism. That's the reason that we have needs in our life, real things that we're carrying, real burdens, but we won't be honest about them. We won't share them. We won't let other people in. And individualism. Second word is consumerism. Consumerism. It's this idea that a life of consumption, you know, kind of um, a YOLO, you know, like more stuff, more experiences, just kind of the more that I can consume, the more that my hungry soul will be satisfied. And even Christians who believe that Jesus is the living water and the bread of life, we find ourselves chasing more consumption. In fact, some even come into the church as a consumer, trying to find a church that they can consume spiritual goods. And when the church is no longer kind of, uh, you know, feeding that hunger, that appetite, they move on to the next church. Some people even come into communities, gospel communities, looking for a community, looking for a community that will meet their needs rather than coming in, looking at brothers and sisters in Christ whom they can grow in unity and love with. Consumerism. And finally, materialism. Materialism. No generation has had more materially than we do, yet we still find ourselves without materialism. Individualism, consumerism, materialism, they're not only deeply rooted American traits, but they are central to suburban culture. There is a reason that in Round Rock, Texas, we have Ikea. <laughs> There's a reason that Bass Pro Shop is here and not, you know, somewhere else, um, because the suburban values of individualism, consumerism, and materialism are the air that we breathe, and they are threats to being the church as it's meant to be. And so I want to just pray over us. I want to ask the Holy Spirit to examine us, and for the great grace of Jesus to help us say no and put off individualism, put off consumerism, put off materialism, so that we can be a unified, committed, growing, generous church family. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the good news this morning. Thank you for the good news of your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit and how you bring about conviction in our life and your kindness that leads us to repentance. We thank you for the forgiveness that is available to us in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that we've experienced once and the, the forgiveness that you offer to us every day. So you woo us deeper and deeper into relationship with you, deeper into the life of Christ. We thank you for the invitation that you give us to walk in obedience. We thank you for your grace that abounds. We thank you for grace that motivates us and grace that transforms us. And we simply pray this morning that you would help us to be a church family. A church family. I pray that you would help us to be a people who are unified. That we come from different places and different backgrounds. Educated, uneducated, wealthy, poor, man, woman, 
young adult, children, married, single, divorced, widowed, black, white, Hispanic, Peruvian, whatever it might be. God, that we have one story. We have one Savior, one Lord, one baptism, one hope. Help us to be a people that put off individualism and lean into community, that in the weeks ahead, months ahead, years ahead, we would be more known than we are today. That we would be a people who are not caught up in this culture of consumption. I think we need more stuff and more toys and more trinkets and more experiences, but instead we are content in Christ, so content that we can give freely the way that you've given for us, Jesus. We want to be the church as it was meant to be. Help us, Holy Spirit. I pray for any person that's here this morning that has needs, that they wouldn't hold those needs back from your people and from you, but that they would bring those needs forward so those needs could be met. I pray for those here, as your word says, who are rich, that they would be rich in generosity, that you would unleash generosity in this church so that we could serve the broken and the poor in this city in more profound ways. And Lord, we do pray that through our life that we live together, that your message would be adorned, that the gospel would be proved, and that you would add to our number day by day those who are being saved. In other words, God, we pray that more people would want to get in on what you're doing here. Let it be so, Lord, for your great name and your glory, we pray. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.